Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, March the 10th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. I am joined today by two members of the Irish Times' political staff. You will all be familiar with uh, Jack Horgan-Jones from previous stellar appearances on this podcast, but I am delighted to welcome Cormac McQuinn, who's a very recent addition to the team. Hi, Cormac. Hi, Hugh. Thanks very much. Delighted to be here. Good. Let's get straight to it. Uh, The front page of the Irish Times today, yet again, leads with the Davy scandal and the involvement of the country's biggest stockbroking firm in nefarious doings back in 2014. Uh, The front page story today concerns the possibility of Bank of Ireland making a bid for the company. And yesterday, central bank officials appeared before an Oireachtas committee to answer questions about the affair. Um, Cormac, you, uh, for your sins, were doing the Irish Times Politics Digest this morning, so you were covering a all of this. Did we really learn anything new yesterday? Do you know, we learned more, I suppose, about what the central bank is it feels is maybe lacking in the regulatory powers that they have at the moment to deal with these kind of scenarios. They want extra uh, abilities to uh, pursue individuals in, in cases like this. Now, the government would say that this is on the way in their senior executive accountability regime legislation, which they hope to have introduced by the summer or introduced into the legislative process, at least by the summer. But that is essentially what we learned. I, I thought Miriam Lord did a very good piece on the whole uh, Oireachtas hearing yesterday where she used uh, as many uh, vampire references she, she could as one of the executives from a central bank talked about how the best disinfectant for this kind of uh, controversy is light. Yeah, I, I don't know if we if we learned a whole lot yesterday. We learned more, I suppose, about what the, the central bank feel is lacking and what they, they can currently do about these situations at the moment. Jack, this is one of those stories which appears both on the business pages of our newspaper and in the political feed as well. And we should obviously look at it more through the political prism. And it was it was very interesting to watch how it's unrolled over the last, I think it's seven days now since the um, since the fine was announced. And the um, the reaction, the initial reaction or non-reaction and the way that that then escalated as the week wore on and into the weekend. So what was going on under the hood of all that? I think you're right. I think it was very strange, first of all, right? Because you had this situation where the central bank issued a record fine and the firm Davy that was on the receiving end of that fine seemed to think they could just keep the head down, keep going, not even issue a statement and just effectively kind of uh, put the fingers in the ears and pretend nothing was going on and, and, and wait out the storm. And it actually took the intervention of the political side in the shape of Pascal Donoghue coming on the news at one and giving an interview and, and, and leaving people in no doubt as to what he wanted to see from Davy to move things along a little bit. And and while you're right, this is, strictly speaking, a more a business story than a political one. It has crossed that Rubicon at several times uh, the first instance being Pascal Donoghue's intervention. The second instance kind of being the, 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 the biggest stick that the state could carry in the short term, the NTMA contract, that's the National Treasury Management Agency contract with Davy, which allowed Davy to be a, a prime broker for Irish government bond, bonds, then being withdrawn. 
Um, now, we don't know if that was done on the authority of the Minister for Finance, but one could certainly imagine it wasn't done without the tacit approval or imprimatur of Pascal Donoghue. And certainly he was pointing out in later interviews that, you know, this was effectively the state, the state agency that he has responsibility for pulling its support for Davy. And, and that was, again, a massive ratcheting up of the pressure. Now, why was it a big ratcheting up of the pressure on Davy? Because Davy only really makes about €4 million Euros a year through that relationship. But it's more about what it signified. It signified for Davy that they'd lost the confidence of the state. Um, one can only imagine how damaging that is in terms of the running repairs they're probably trying to do with their own client base if they can't turn around and say, well, you know, we still have a big state contract. And one can only imagine the damage that it does in terms of going forward if they are pitching for work with any other state agency, be it Irish or otherwise, they'll probably have to divulge at one point we had a state contract and we lost it because of X, Y and Z. So it, it, it was another it was another, you know, big interaction between the political system and and the, the ongoing rolling scandal of Davy. And then we had obviously the central bank coming into the finance committee. And um, so while this is this is clearly, you know, in some ways it's at a remove, it's a regulatory matter, it's a business matter in other in other ways low standards in high finance is always a magnet for political attention. So we shouldn't be surprised to see the two the two worlds crossing over. And I don't think that's necessarily gonna stop at, at this point either. I think we should we, we should expect to to see continuing pressure, hints, nudges, winks from the political side about the shareholding of some of the members of the Davy sixteen in the brokerage going forward. And there's a strong impression coming across that effectively they want to, the, they, the political system wants to see that sorted out. They want to see the Davy 16 reverse out of ownership positions in the firm before I think that, that you know, a, a kind of a truce can be declared and we can start thinking about, you know, work like the NTMA going back to Dawson Street. So Cormac, I mean, you were talking about some some debate about whether you know whether the regulatory authorities have the have the teeth which they which they require, and Pascal Donoghue pushed back on that yesterday, and it was kind of interesting to listen to Jim O'Callaghan of Fianna Fáil talking about this as well. He was making a point that the central bank does have a range of a range of powers, and he suggested really that that the central bank has focused too much or excessively on the powers which it used last week, in other words, to uh, for discovery of, of wrongdoing and then to reach a financial settlement with the wrongdoers. And that has been quite successful for the central bank, I think, over the last few years. It's recouped quite a lot of money from financial institutions for, for their wrongdoings. But there are there are other things it can do. And Jim O'Callaghan was suggesting that it perhaps needs to be more conscious of its regulatory powers. Yeah, I mean, it's... There is a frustration among politicians, you know, particularly opposition, but you'll find it among the government as well, that no individuals are, have been held to account for this thing. The other frustration that's there as well is the length of time it has taken to, to reach any sort of resolution to the Davy scandal. I mean, you, you remember this first broke in, in, I think, 2014, uh, so seven years ago. It's from the ashes of the uh, the financial crisis. The whole core of this thing was was a breach of market rules in relation to the to the sale of Anglo Irish bank bonds in the in the original. So it, it's this the kind of depths of time stuff that we're only seeing seeing a resolution to now. So so I think that will be a focus of of where uh, political attention lies as there's a response to this. Would be the the whole issue of uh, individual accountability, but also the the slow pace of of investigations into into matters of these kind. 
Jack, I mean, this is a politics podcast rather than a business podcast, but I know you, these are areas that you've covered in the past as well. Can I ask you a stupid question as somebody who's not involved in, in that world? I'm just slightly flummoxed by the fact that it is possible at all for a company of this sort to have employees and executives who also hold a major shareholding in the company in question and who also are permitted to benefit financially directly from transactions of this sort, because none of that, I think, was wrong. What was wrong was the concealing of their involvement from from their client in this instance. I mean, it seems to me to be a recipe for conflict of interest anyway. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there's, there's two parts. The the, the ownership of firms um, by by employees and by executives is not is not massively unusual in, in financial institutions, particularly kind of medium sized ones like Davy. I think you're right that it, it does seem kind of antediluvian in, in some ways. It seems like like a throwback to the pre crash times. You know that you might you might you would have firms that are so kind of nakedly run in in the interests of the people who work for them now i'm sure the people who work for them would would turn around and say that you know l'etat c'est moi you know the 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 interests of the employees and the executives and and those of the clients are perfectly aligned but that's why this was such a problem for davy because effectively they they sidestepped their own compliance function the people that are supposed to keep an eye on Davies internal um you know compliance with with their own sets of rules were were sidelined here and that is as you put your finger on that is actually what the central bank has has such a problem with it's not necessarily um the idea that someone might privately gain from it, it it's the fact that they wouldn't kind of fess up and and you know make sure all is right with their own gods on it i mean cormac obviously the the thing that really i would have thought scares politicians about this particularly government politicians and particularly politicians in Fianna Fáil and in Fine Gael, is it reeks of the kind of behavior that people associate with the financial crash and the financial wrongdoings around the crash a kind of a um a slow regulatory process the people at the centre of it don't really suffer directly for their wrongdoing or don't appear to be doing so. An attempt in the financial establishment to close ranks. Even the story today about Bank of Ireland might go in and, and purchase Davy. That kind of paints a picture as well of a, um, a sort of self-serving financial circle, I suppose. Yeah, and I think I think it is very important that they they do get this senior executive accountability legislation over the line as soon as possible because it it will be a way for them to combat that perception that that you know the same scenario could apply now and and that uh, you know the same thing could happen again at another financial institution but it is, it is as I understand it very complex legislation so while the, the target of uh, the summer in terms of getting it over the line or getting it through the Oireachtas at least, um, or even published, is what they're they're striving for. Uh, that remains to be seen whether whether that will actually be released, uh, re- achieved, and that's when they will face criticism from from the opposition if if they don't manage that, given the the focus that has been put on it in recent days. But yeah, no, it, it it's something Fianna Fáil would be particularly uh, 
sensitive to, given the the reputational damage that that party suffered during the last economic crisis. So they they will certainly want to be seen to be on pushing for for resolving kind of issues that that arose uh, more more than a decade ago, I suppose. I mean, speaking of getting things through the Oireachtas, Jack, the government now has the ability to implement mandatory hotel quarantines for people arriving from certain countries who are seen it uh, as being high COVID risks. That's finally happened. There's been a lot of accusations of foot dragging along the way, a lot of suggestions that this could all have been sorted out last year, or at least have the mechanism in place, and that it could be activated when required. I wonder, is, it, is there a touch of stable doors and horses bolting about this at this point? I think there might be, uh, like, I mean, in, in some ways... It, it, it is a piece of legislation that moved through, through the Oireachtas fairly quickly. In other ways, it was never going to be quick enough. And also, even as you had the legislation proceeding through the houses and being signed off by, by the president, there's this whole other track, which is how is mandatory hotel quarantine actually going to work on the ground? What are the nuts and bolts of this? Who's going to operate it? Um, you know, How are people going to be bussed from the airport to the hotels? Who's going to keep an eye on them once they're there? What's the role of the guardie? And all that kind of stuff has been in a black box in the Department of Finance getting worked out. And we should get, indeed, by the time people are listening to this, we may actually know the the name of the, the chosen one who's going to actually um, operate this system on behalf of the government. And the hope then is that, as Cormac has reported before, that there'll be a kind of one-stop shop. There'll be one private sector operator who sub- subcontracts all the different pieces out. Um, and it'll all kind of run fairly smoothly. Two things. One, you're right, horses and stable doors, the political damage has been shipped on the travel issue already. So now really it's it's a matter of kind of damage limitation and there's more risks to the downside. There's more of a chance of kind of something negative crystallising for the government on this, either through how the hotel um, system works, you know, the cost of the contract, for example, um, if there's any incidents on site, you know, there could be associated scandal and fallout from that. Uh, the degree to which it's actually successful um, at, at, at keeping a lid on the numbers coming in, the, uh, the, how the disease is actually managed in hotels, all these things are, are potential, potential landmines, you know. Um, so I don't think that mandatory hotel quarantine is, is in any way an easy win for the government and getting it up and running. It's been a quite painful birth and, and, and I'm not sure that it's going to get any, any easier from here on out because the issue of travel isn't going away and it's only going to become more important as we, fingers crossed, get a handle on the level of disease in society and the, 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 the proper community transmission. The stopping importing cases and stopping importing variants will become front and centre along with ramping up the vaccine rollout when it comes to actually, fingers crossed, getting back to some semblance of normal as we move towards summer, autumn, which is the timeline which in and of itself seems to be rather fluid. I mean, yeah, there's so many unknowables there, Cormac, but do we have any sense of what kind of numbers of people we're talking about here? In other words, so therefore, what sort of amount of accommodation is required and how many staff will be will be needed to, to make this system work? I think this is going to be one of the most interesting aspects of, of this new system as, as it's rolled out is will it be like that the private hospitals were last year all booked up for, for the summer months and, and actually not very full occupancy or will we have a situation where, where there, we find that we, we won't have enough hotel rooms for, for people travelling from high-risk countries? So, I mean, there are, there are 33 countries on the, the current uh, high-risk list 
the vast majority of them don't have any direct flights to Ireland at all. Those that do are the, the likes of the United Arab Emirates and, and Austria. But to, to give you some sense of the, the numbers, I suppose, uh, I, I see a report from uh, you know recent weeks that in a 28-day period over, over January and uh, February, there was uh, just over 2,000 people from Brazil, which, of course, one of the countries on the list, given the, the variant that was first identified there. There was a, a bit more than 2,000 people from the United Arab Emirates as well. So they're, they're, they're the sort of numbers. And, and actually, if they all arrived in the space of a month, you know, given that it's a two-week quarantine, that's quite a lot of hotel rooms that you, you'd require, really. But there's also the, the possibility and a probably strong possibility that if, if people coming from those countries know that they'll have to mandatory quarantine and have to pay for the, the pleasure, uh, it, might, it might deter people from coming in the first place. So it's something that I, I feel like we'll be keeping a very close eye on as this new system is, is rolled out. If there's one plus side to the government for all this, it means that they finally they are prepared if a new variant of the virus emerges in some other country that they can quite quickly add that country to the list of high risk countries and straight away start start quarantining people. We won't have a situation whereby, you know, uh, the 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 variant that that originated in, or was first seen in the United Kingdom or in Britain just before Christmas. You know, albeit there was there was travel restrictions put in place. Uh, you know, we we had a lot of people coming over, and it it indeed became the the dominant variant of of COVID in in Ireland up to the present day. Yeah, I mean, the main story, obviously. More so than that, right now is the question of the vaccine rollout, and and more importantly, the quantity of vaccines. Whatever about certain glitches, Jack, with the with the rollout itself, at in in certain localities and in some instances, the real problem is we don't have enough vaccines, and uh, we're being let down, particularly by AstraZeneca, which clearly drastically overpromised in terms of the quantity of vaccines it, it it said it could provide in the first in the first quarter of the year, and you add that to really not not a great performance by the by the European Commission, um, which we're relying on. Uh, although, albeit as we're recording this podcast, I see an announcement from Michal Martin that uh, additional vaccines have been sourced by. Uh, by the Commission, Ursula von der Leyen says that Ireland is going to get an additional 46,500 in March, which is not negligible, I suppose. Yeah, it's not negligible, but it's not massive either. I mean, like you were doing, what, 80,000 a week? So it's it's half a week's doses. It's not, that's not earth, earth shattering. It's the first time I've heard that number, but it's not, it's not earth shattering. It's not going to make a massive difference to the bottom line, you'd have to think. I mean, I think the the, the problem here is that even though the government has kind of consistently, whenever it is projected a target, so to speak, it is kind of heavily caveated it and then sought the protection of those caveats when those targets have fallen away. Nonetheless, the government has confidently predicted hitting certain markers, which it has then missed. And all the time, it has been the same kind of supply bogeyman, which is true, and it has been the same promise running along in the background that there will be an inflection point at some point when we will be carried through the summer on a flood of vaccines. And people, I think, are getting more than a little bit tired and more than a little bit weary of the message being that there is a good time coming and it's just around the corner because we keep on rounding the corner and the message is just a little bit longer. And I think that that is beginning to grate. I think it's beginning to... Combine with, you know, an understandable lockdown fatigue, you know, it's it's what it's the, the 10th of March. So we've been in, in a full and proper lockdown for over two months now. And um, we're still facing fairly significant caseloads every day. And um, people are tired. 
and people are frustrated and the the lack of tangible substantial progress on that infamous ramping up that's going to happen i think is is kind of corrosive to public buy-in and kind of corrosive to to public support for the government and public support for pandemic policy writ large and i think that that's why this is such a kind of politically combustible question they need to make progress on this they need to make good on these promises whether they're caveated or not they need to bring the vaccine uh, element home because otherwise i think there's a risk of you know these kind of threads that we see in irish politics around anti-masking or anti-lockdown protests growing or just a kind of a, a slipping in compliance with public health health measures those kind of things falling away as confidence ebbs um, and and the kind of sense that you know the government is is over promising and under delivering really becomes entrenched and and becomes a longer term problem for them as opposed to just something that will be washed away by that flood of vaccines in the medium term. And I think Cormac, that's exacerbated in in Ireland um, as as is pointed out in an editorial in our newspaper today by the fact that the kind of the the cultural sphere which we uh, which we inhabit the Anglosphere the United Kingdom and the United States are two of the best performing countries in the world and they're well ahead of Europe and well ahead of Ireland. And of course, we can see this only 100 kilometres north of our, ourselves on the other side of the border where they're well ahead of where where the Republic is at. These continuing problems, now the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is due to be approved by the European Medicines Agency, but we're hearing now that we're not going to get the kind of numbers um, as quickly as was anticipated at first. We're not going to see it till we're, we're well into April but the point Jack makes about the difficulty facing the government, the thing I wonder is how much agency does the government have here? We are hearing increasing calls on the government to look elsewhere for additional supplies of vaccine, whether that be the United Kingdom, the United States or somewhere else. Um, pointing, Some people pointing at how Denmark, for example, has managed to do that. Is it realistic to expect that Michal Martin uh, can go out and find more vaccines somewhere else to make up for the shortcomings of the European system? I don't believe it is, to be honest. Uh, and it, they have been making these efforts and, and seeing if seeing if they can be sourced from elsewhere in the EU. And uh, and there has been discussions with the United Kingdom about it. But I mean, the, the, all of those countries are in the, the same situation. They want to get uh, vaccines into the arms of their populations as, as quickly as possible as well. I mean, it's in nobody's interest to, to start uh, distributing vaccines to their neighbouring countries. It's, it seems a bit desperate to be going asking. However, on the other hand, they would be criticised for not trying every avenue for doing this. I mean, we have seen some uh, European countries go for the Russian Sputnik vaccine uh, and, and they are they apparently are being sold uh, to other countries by Russia. I know the EMA is, look, is beginning to look into that vaccine in terms of whether or not it could be approved here. So perhaps that's an avenue. I thought one interesting piece, uh, part of uh, a piece written by Pat Lee today was uh, that the government has... Uh, been in touch with pharmaceutical companies with operations here to to see if they could perhaps manufacture here as well and would maybe cover the costs of, of converting production plants. I thought that maybe actually might be a more realistic uh, proposition than going uh, looking for vaccines from neighbours. But to echo what Jack was saying, it, it is dispiriting for people out there. I mean, whatever about the the vast bulk of us in the in the uh, the the big age group, the big cohort that'll be at the very end, whenever all of the 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 more uh, prioritised groups are are done. Uh, 
you have to look like look at groups like yeah, nurses and guardian and teachers and childcare workers. They're they're all calling for for uh, prioritization of the vaccine. Family carers probably have a, a better argument altogether. But it, it is dispiriting for the population in general uh, to uh, to not know when when we're going to be getting those vaccines. You might recall last week, uh, U.S. President Joe Biden was able to announce that he he believes that uh, the United States will have all of its uh, adults vaccinated by the end of May, which is about two months earlier than had previously thought. I mean, you, I, I get the impression that the government here would kill to be able to to make a similar announcement. Uh, I know uh, Leo Varadkar was talking at his uh, parliamentary party meeting last week about how you know our target of of September for for adults. Uh, he's He's hoping that could be beaten, but he, he all he could say is that he hopes. He can't say that it will be, and uh, that is that is something that you you would have to believe that the the government is is desperately hoping they can say at some point that they could they could move that timetable up even a little bit uh, to give people some good news. But that helplessness, Jack, that lack of agency, um, that's really dangerous. I think for for any government, isn't it? No matter how realistic or unrealistic suggestions are that you can go off and get doses of Sputnik or uh, Plomos, Joe Biden on St. Patrick's Day, all of which seem at the very best to be long shots to me. I think so. Um, like when, Whenever the government effectively has to turn around and, and admit that it is more or less powerless or, you know, trammeled by bigger operators like the EU, I think it, it's a bad look, you know, for them effectively to say we're, we're limited in what we can do here on your behalf. But notwithstanding those limits, you know, talking to a couple of uh, people in the pharmacy sector recently, indeed, one only this morning um, about the vaccine rollout. And, and they were making the point that the, the, the political promises that have been made off the back of limited information have been overambitious. They were saying that effectively, if you look at what the government have done, um, they've taken the projected delivery amounts under the advanced purchase agreements uh, that would come in the second quarter and divided them by three and said, well, they'll arrive in three even lumps across the three months of the second quarter and they've made a fairly big political declaration off the back of that um which is that we'll get 80 percent of people done by the end of june and 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 um what i'm hearing is that no one else in europe has really made promises of that scale so you know there is a real risk that they're making a rod for their own back here because even if you just look at the johnson and johnson um vaccine that's the the single shot the latest in in a long line of, of game changers you know, you look at the anticipated volumes in the government's path ahead plan, and it was 200,000 uh, a month, divide, the 600,000 payload divided evenly. Now, it's not going to be that at all. We know that it's going to arrive probably not for at least another month, at least another month. So middle of April, if not towards the end of April, and it's going to be very slow at first. Now, that doesn't read across to being able to hit your 80% target, you know. So I think that Look, it's, it's a very difficult situation for the government to be in. They want to be able to give as much certainty as possible to people who are demanding certainty. And they're doing so in an environment which is incredibly dynamic. But like they will reap the political whirlwind on this. And um, even if we're comparatively middle of the pack, you know, people, because they're looking across the water in both directions and seeing um, significant relaxation of restrictions probably over the summer, people won't have, have patience or, or time for this. And that's why the the political pressure is, is so massive to deliver. And that's why they're looking at these kind of Hail Mary uh, type approaches, you know, the, 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 the shamrocks for vaccines approach to Biden, you know, which which probably don't don't have much more than a snowball's chance, really. Now, Cormac, on another, on another matter, I think when people are writing the history of the modern Irish state over the last 30 years or so, a recurring feature 
is the eruption of scandals from the past in institutions, uh, clerical sexual abuse, mother and baby homes, uh, Madeleine Laundries, the list is is long and, and very well known. Is it possible we're on the cusp of yet another one of these with this issue of illegal adoptions? You know, the phrase another dark chapter is, is, has become very cliched at this point when we, we look at the, the kind of things that happen in 20th century Ireland. Yes, is the only answer to that. I mean, the, the, the scale of this thing or the potential scale of, of this is, is quite extraordinary. Uh, the possibility of, of uh, up to 20,000 illegal adoptions or the suggestion that it may, may have occurred is quite uh, shocking, really. The big issue with with this particular investigation, though, is how how murky it all is. I mean, they're they're relying on on looking through thousands of of uh, files related to adoptions and birth certs and finding markers that indicate that there might be a suspicious adoption. Uh, you know, one one such marker was a, a kind of a phrasing adopted from birth, which was found on files related to the St. Patrick's Guild Society, the former society. Um, and that was the, the discovery that uh, sparked this whole thing when it was found that, that uh, around 100, that 126 people, their adoptions had been irregular and their documents falsified. Uh, so, you know, that number grew and then they, they conducted this sampling exercise, which was published this week. And that's where we have the, the potential for, for 20,000 cases. But it's it's incredibly difficult one to, to get to the bottom of because the, the evidence they're looking at is all indicative. And, you know, you're you're relying on on files from from decades past. And we're talking about stuff that that happened 40, 50, 60 years ago. So it's it's very difficult to investigate. And there's, there doesn't seem to be a clear path as to what steps will, will happen next. It's been, been moved over to the Special Rapporteur for Children for, for them to look at for some months ahead. But it's, it's by no means clear whether we will uh, end up with a, a full inquiry into this uh, late, latest saga in, in how Ireland uh, treated uh, women and children uh, in the 20th century. So, Jack, you were looking in, in some detail at this, this story. Yeah, so th- I think the the problem with the, the sampling report that was published yesterday is that it was conceived of as something that would kind of defang or make the problem of illegal adoptions easier uh, to, to measure, to understand and to tackle. And it did that, as Cormac said, by trying to or hoping that there might be a replication of these markers that were found on the St. Patrick's Guild adoption files across, you know, the hundred thousand or so other adoption files that the state um, that the state holds. And so it went looking for certain key phrases and and came back and said, effectively, look, there's a broad scope that might be affected between 5,000 and 20,000 is our best guess. But if when you read the report and actually get into it, what they also say is that the methodology didn't really work, that like it hasn't proved effective. And that's why they're not recommending a further inquiry based on going in and looking for these key phrases. So effectively what the government has done has said, right, we, 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 had, we had a crack at that or the previous government had a crack at that trying to measure the problem. It didn't work. We now, we have a serious political problem we're going to kick it to touch. We're going to give it to the, the children's, uh, the special rapporteur for children for six months. And in the interim, we're going to hope that we can progress 
the adoption and tracing legislation. And we're going to hope that that kind of bounces the ball back to people themselves who might want to go off and make requests, that access requests about their own files, you know, and that kind of takes the onus off the state who might be faced with a situation whereby they're looking at a file and saying and, and, and saying to themselves after having examined it, well, you know, there's a 70% chance that this person was illegally adopted. What's the threshold for going and telling this person and potentially ruining their life and causing all this distress? So they're hoping that the adoption tracing legislation effectively takes the job out of the government's hands and puts it back into individuals' hands. And that may well be successful. That might work from the kind of data management, access requests, that kind of side. There is a whole other side to this, which is, you know, how the state, dealt with and how the adoption system treated women and children and it is the latest dark chapter in a dark story and when you read the files when you read the Tusla files that they dug up you know and and the reports that they wrote on them they say that this this methodology didn't work but also we found all these other issues around consent around forced adoption around the potential you know trade in 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 babies um, you know, these issues, like there was one part that stuck with me in particular, the story of, of, of a woman who uh, gave her baby up for adoption, worked nearby the convent for years in the hope that she could get her baby back when the baby turned 16, only to be told on that date that the child had died some years ago. And, you know, the, the, the almost immeasurable, um, unspeakable cruelty of something like that is an open and festering wound. And, and, and there will be a big push, I think, even if they manage to square away the, the access to records part, to have a, a historical reckoning and a truth and reconciliation, reconciliation process around the adoption system. And that's where the, the kind of the, the, the politically dangerous and, and the, the politically combustible element of this story might go, even if they're able to address um, the, 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 the right of people to access their records. Okay, thanks for that. That's a grim, grim prospect indeed. We will leave it there. Thanks very much indeed to to Jack, and thanks also to Cormac for joining us for the first time, and to our producer Jennifer Ryan and JJ Vernon, who's our engineer. If you would like to get in touch with us, do drop us a line at politicspodcast at irishtimes dot com. We're always very pleased to hear from you. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. <laughs>